verses 10 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You shall worship that which you do not know. We worship... Uh, that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We'll now turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who performed their service was... Of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nethaniah, and Asherilah, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah, Zeri, Jeshaiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six, under the direction of their father Jeduthun, with the harp who prophesied in giving thanks and praise to Yahweh. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bukiah, Madaniah, Uziel, Shebuel, and Jeremoth, Hananiah, Hanani, Eliatha, Gedalti, and Ramamti Ezer, Joshbekashah, Malathi, Hothir, Mehaziath. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God. For God gave fourteen sons and three daughters to Heman. All these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the direction of the king, and their number who were trained in singing to Yahweh with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. And they cast lots for their duties all alike, the small as well as the great, the teacher as well as the pupil. 
Now, if you would turn to the back of your bulletin, we'll read together Psalm 136. And as we do this, I will read the first part of the line and the congregation will respond with, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, you draw us into your presence and you speak to us your word. And uh, we confess that when we think about your word, we're more inclined often to look at what's in the New Testament. And some of these passages in the Old Testament are difficult, and yet they're inspired. And you tell us in your word that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable to us. So teach us and change us this morning. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his side. When he is judged, 
Let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined houses. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labors. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his children. Let his posterity be cut off in a following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Have you ever sung a hymn like that? Yet that is just a portion of Psalm 109 that is part of the Psalter, the Psalter meaning the 150 Psalms. And uh, the three men mentioned in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 25, appointed with their posterity, trained in music, with leaders, 288 leaders, and four thousand singers they went to the temple when it was built and they sang the Psalter they sang the Psalter when the ascension offering was lit a fire and they sang it until it was all burned up they sang again in the evening when the ascension offering was lighted with fire, and they sang until it was all burned up. It takes quite a while to burn animals up, and some figure that basically they were singing all the time. They were appointed by David, as we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, and they were appointed by the commanders of the armies. That's an interesting thought. So seemingly, the songs that they sang were on the one hand praises to God, and on the other hand, they were an assault against the enemy. And in fact, when we get to Second Chronicles chapter 20, that's exactly what we will discover, that when we come to worship, we are engaging in battle with our fiercest enemy, Satan, and his cohorts. The Psalms are made to do battle. The Psalms, of course, are something uh, that we personally enjoy, at least most of them, not quite all of them. I'm sure most of us don't take for our devotion Psalm 109, when in fact, we should. The imprecatory psalms bother us. Some would like to say, well, when it comes to such psalms, they do not belong in the New Testament, yet there is no such division made within the New Testament when we are told to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is a fact that the Psalter is the hymn book 
of the church. So sometimes we may think, well, you know, the Psalms are made for when we're feeling bad or we have trouble, and so they are, and we turn to them to find comfort and solace. But the Psalms are not particularly uh, designed, that's probably not quite the right word, they weren't written with the individual purposely in mind. You see, they come from the sweet psalmist of Israel, David. He wrote the majority of them. There are other psalmists as well. But in appointing singers and musicians to sing the psalms before Yahweh, because uh, in Chronicles 1 and 2, this expression is made to give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. That is the purpose of the psalms. And so they go on worship day and they sing the psalms. Now, we didn't read the rest of the chapter. Like the priests, they are cut into 24 divisions. And they presumably, like the priests, go up one week and then they go back home. And then they go up another week to Jerusalem. And then they go back home which makes 48 weeks in which there are singers at the temple, but then there are the festivals, the Passover and unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, not to mention the week that goes with the Day of Atonement. So all the singers and musicians, like the priests, are at the temple, or the tabernacle, until the temple is finished, all year round, singing maybe 24 hours a day and singing as the ascension offering ascends. Now remember, the ascension offering is the ascent of of transformed human beings into the presence of Yahweh. So the hands are put on the Uh, on the sacrifice to identify with it. Then the sacrificer slits the animal's throat and the blood is spilled out and the blood is put on the horns of the altar and sprinkled at the base of the altar so that God's judgment against man is satisfied. Then the animal is skinned and sectioned and laid on the fire where it goes up in smoke, it's transformed. And as it goes up, it makes this cloud that then joins the glory cloud of Yahweh, sucked into Yahweh. Well, the evening and morning sacrifices, of course, were not made by individuals. They were made by the priests on behalf of the nation. And that reminds us that God said to Pharaoh, let my son go. uh, Israel is God's first born son. And so each morning and evening, God's son is transformed into smoke and goes up into Yahweh's presence. The Psalms are, uh, well, not as familiar to us as they ought to be. In a minute, we'll look at Ephesians and Colossians, but they are the songbook of the church. And uh, we have trouble. We've experienced here at NBC as we try to learn some psalms. First of all, as we note, the psalms that we sing 
are metrical psalms. That means you take the psalm and uh, to get it into a form in which you can sing it the way uh, tunes are written, you change the words all around and you change some of them altogether into other words. And so when you sing it, it may have the sense of the psalm, but you certainly are not learning the psalms word by word. You're learning a, uh, a metered form of it, a transformed form. And then we sing hymns that are just paraphrases. They're not even a metrical psalm, trying to change the words and move them around so that you can come out with a kind of song that you can sing. Instead, things like Jesus Shall Reign by Isaac Watts is a poem that is based on Psalm 72, and it's fairly accurate to Psalm 72, and it's a hymn that we love to sing. Or, or something like, our, oh God, our help in ancient, in, oh God, our help in ages past, there you go, also written by Isaac Watts, is a poem from Psalm 90. Again, fairly accurate, but it's not learning the Psalms. In earlier days, churches sang the Psalms, particularly Reformed churches. It's not as true about Baptist churches, but particularly Reformed churches sang the Psalms, and they learned them. <clears throat> so we uh, just listened to a portion of Psalm 109. Can you imagine singing that? Well, uh, in, in, in France, the Huguenots sang the Psalms. And the singing of the psalms, they would sing as they're walking down the street, and it bothered the French so much that they outlawed the singing of the psalms. Because you can imagine, if you take a lot of psalms and you sing them, and people who don't know the Lord hear them, they're threatening. They're scary. You don't want to hear about your sin. But the psalms talk about sin. And the psalms talk about a God who is coming to judge in righteousness, just as we read from Psalm 98 in the call to worship this morning. So the Huguenots outlawed the singing of the psalms. So then the, the, the French sent, then the Huguenots went to whistling them. So they outlawed the whistling of the psalms. If you think about uh, previous years, uh, in the 90s, in the 80s, yeah, I don't, I don't remember how long it lasted. You know, that there were protests at abortion clinics where the clinic would be surrounded by Christians who would sing certain, sing certain hymns. Imagine singing what I just read to you from Psalm 109 around an abortion clinic. That would be quite something, wouldn't it? But it's really actually more fitting to the situation than singing hymns about grace and mercy, because what's happening inside is murder. And murder calls for judgment. And the people who commit murder, particularly the doctors doing the abortion, and the poor girl who has the infant, and where is the guy? He gets off scot-free. But Psalm 109 is a fitting psalm. But, of course, that doesn't fit our palate too much. That's why we need the psalms. You see, when we go to write music, we don't write like that. 
And our music is not inspired. I recall now that uh, several years ago I mentioned that the Psalter is the only inspired hymn book. And someone came up to me, someone who's not, is not in the church any longer. Someone came up and said, what, what do you mean? All hymns are inspired. He didn't realize that I was talking about inspiration by the Spirit. So when you, when you read a psalm or when you sing a psalm, you are reading and singing God talking. That's just the way it is. So the psalms are, uh, are well, they're the church's hymn book. And we don't know our hymn book. We need to know it better. We're striving to do a little of that at NBC. It will take a long time. And... Uh, if we wanted to really learn the psalm in the sense of, uh, like, like many of us have passages of Scripture memorized, some of us even have some of the psalms memorized, but if we wanted to learn them like we sing uh, Jesus Shall Reign, and a lot of us could sing that song just by heart. We've sung it so many times. If we wanted to be true to the psalms so that we got the words down in our guts, we would have to chant the psalms. That's unlikely to happen, wouldn't you think? We're probably not given to chanting, and it's not an easy thing to do, necessarily. One can do it. And to us, it reeks of Roman Catholicism. The thing is, in Roman Catholicism, before the Reformation, it was only in Latin. Whatever was done, the congregation had nothing to do with it. In fact, most Catholics probably went to Mass once or twice a year, and that was about it, because after all, they couldn't understand any of it. It was just the Catholic priest up front going through the motions, doing that. And so the Reformers used chant. Why? Because that's the way you can pick up your Bible and sing a psalm and know the psalm. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you we're going to do chant. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that is one way whereby one would end up memorizing all the Psalter, 150 psalms. Hyde read to us, Jesus engaged with the woman at the well, and she notes that he's a prophet. And uh, the discussion comes up where to worship. And uh, she says, well, we worship in this mountain, but you people say that men ought to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, an hour is coming when the true worshipers of God will neither worship in Jerusalem or this mountain, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. For such worshipers the Father is seeking. Those who worship God worship in spirit and in truth. And last week, I was suggesting to you that uh, we maybe look at that because in most of your Bibles, I suppose the word spirit is not capitalized. It's a small s. That is, the sense is, okay, I worship individually out of my spirit to worship God. That may be a true statement, but that is hardly the statement that Jesus is making. Jesus is talking about a locale where we worship. You're not going to worship in 
this mountain or in Jerusalem. You're going to worship in spirit and truth. And that expression really is a play on Deuteronomy chapter 12, where when you come into the land and I give you rest, then I'm going to put my name in this place. And the chapter is talking then about going to that place and worshiping God and making one's sacrifices there instead of elsewhere and not worshiping according to the habits and the customs of the people whom they've dispossessed. So you have, you go to a central sanctuary and you worship Yahweh there and you worship him according to what he has set forth as worship, not what the Canaanites or the Hivites or the Perizzites have set forth as worship. Although the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Perizzites, of course, are all trying, they have some false religion, but it's based on what Yahweh has set up. It's just twisted and tangled and perverse. So when Jesus says, the Father seeking worshipers, and true worshipers worship in spirit and truth, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, worshiping according to God's word, and the Holy Spirit makes space for us. That is, the Holy Spirit is that glory cloud of God that flies through the air, that leads Israel from place to place. At nighttime, it shines out as a light. During the day, it looks like a smoky cloud. And it is God in his chariot with all the host of angels around him. We get, as it were, sucked up into that cloud in worship. The Spirit makes a place for us. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, a passage you know well. Ephesians chapter 5, verse, chapters 4 and 5, of course, are divided in, uh, in its paragraphs, in its pericopes, by uh, the word walk. So in chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the times because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, as I've told you many times before, and I tell you again and remind you, in the Bible, when we talk about finding the will of the Lord, we are not talking about something subjective. We are talking about something objective that you can read in the scriptures and you find it out. Now, certainly one could pray to the Lord, uh, should I marry this woman or not? You're looking for wisdom. But exactly God's will in the sense of he's going to give you some impression or something, I, I, that, that's not the point. The point is you marry according to God's will. And so the scriptures lay down the kind of person one should marry and when you find that kind of person, if you so desire, then when you marry, you've married according to God's will. So here he's talking about the objective will of God, and he's going to tell us what it is. So he says, 
So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Remember, I told you that dissipation is the negation of the word for salvation. It's unsavedness. The word salvation means to make someone whole, bring everything together. The word dissipation means everything falls apart. When you get drunk with wine, your life falls apart. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he has three things to say in 19, 20, and 21 that play off that. They, they continue the sentence. And the question is, is this how you get filled with the Spirit? Or is this when one is filled with the Spirit, this is what one does? Well, the Greek allows for both. How do you know which it is? Well, I suggest to you it's both. And by the way, when you sing psalms, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 31, no, excuse me, 2 Chronicles, I believe it is. No, 1 Chronicles. What we're told is to sing until there's joy. In other words, singing brings about joy. And so when we follow what he's saying here then, what, what's going to happen is there's going to, we, we come in sad and downcast, and we begin to sing the psalms, and we perk up, and our hearts are filled with joy. And so we make melody to the Lord. So he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit by or so that, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Now, the word singing is a word for singing, and making melody is, well, not a very good translation because the word is singing and psalming with your heart to the Lord. So you see, when uh, one wants the objective will of God, okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, here's what Paul says. This is what you do. You speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and psalming, which is a, 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 a sound like plucking a string. That's, that's what goes along with the psalms. Because you notice in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, we have harps and lyres. You pluck the stringed instruments, and you have cymbals, and you have horns. Horns aren't mentioned as much in uh, chapter 25, but they're mentioned elsewhere. So that when these men, these 4,000 men, take their turn at the tabernacle, the temple, they come with stringed instruments. They come with percussion instruments, and they come with horns. Actually, the priests blow the horns. And they sing to Yahweh. Many of them are singing with their voices. And of course, we know when we're speaking, and we know the difference between speaking and singing. And interestingly enough, the word speaking here in verse 19 is sometimes translated singing. It's a word that can be used for singing in the New Testament. Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The psalms, we know what those are. We don't, we don't have to look for a definition. It's the Psalter, the 150 psalms. It's the hymns and spiritual songs that one's not quite sure what they are, 
But let me suggest to you that it's really not talking about what we call hymnody today. I'm not saying such a thing is wrong. It's not wrong to write hymns today, certainly not. But I think what he's talking about is different portions of scripture that he classifies as hymns and other portions of scripture that he classifies as songs, spiritual songs, meaning songs that are of the spirit. So what he's talking about here is, is using God's word. Now, you all have heard this. You'll people say to you, well, you know, God loves it when you pray God's word back to him. Or people say to well, you, pray to God the promises of God. All of that comes out of God's word. It's true with singing too. God inspired David with a schematic for the temple building and with a plan for the temple worship. It is all from God, brought about through David, which he then passes on to Solomon and those under Solomon's authority for them to build the temple which takes them seven years to build the shell, and then, along with other projects, another 13 years to glorify it. There's a, a lot of work to do once the shell is built to add the gold and the silver and the bronze and, and all the stuff that goes in it. And, and so these psalms then go along with that temple. So he says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and psalming with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So just notice, notice the triune God is in these three add-ons to the statement, don't get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. How? By singing, by thanking, and by fearing. The subject of the thanks is God the Father. The subject of the fear is Christ. The singing has to do with the Spirit. It is the spirit that puts a song of scripture in our heart. And it is the spirit that gives breath. His very name means breath. Ruach, wind. So that when Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool, not the cool, in the spirit of the day. It was the Sabbath day. And God came to meet with his two people on the Sabbath day. As God has come to meet with his people from that day forward on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day takes a transition when we come to past Jesus. Jesus rested on the Sabbath and he rose on the first day of the week. And so that becomes the day of the church. God comes to meet with his people every Lord's day, as it's put in Revelation chapter 1, I saw on the Lord's day. And part, 
in, in the Old Testament, that same expression in Hebrew is the day of the Lord. So when God comes to meet with his people, God evaluates his people. Just like when you uh, have a family dinner and you sit down at dinner, you speak with your children, you talk to them, you see what they're doing, what they're up to, if they're doing the things you've asked them to do, and you evaluate them, and if they need a little scolding, you scold them. If they need something a little more severe, you give them something a little more severe. But if everything is going well, you praise them, and you say, well done. That's what God does with his people. He comes every Lord's day, and we meet with him. And the Spirit inspires, uh, now I'm using the word loosely, moves us to sing his word to him in psalm. But of course, you see, that's a play on words. Because the Spirit is the giver of breath and life. And so when we speak the words of God, it is the Spirit who's giving us breath to speak the words of God. Now, when that speech is glorified, when that speech moves to a higher level, it is the Spirit that gives a breath for us to sing the Psalms, the Word of God, in praise back to Him. That's what was happening at the temple. So this orchestra, with its singers, 4,000 taking their turns at the temple, the Spirit gives them breath to sing and blow horns. It's the work of the Spirit. Now, notice it says singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we note, we note, even though we think of the psalms on a personal level, and I'm not trying to discredit that idea, this is a corporate context. When you're in your house, you cannot sing Psalm 109 to me, even though you think I may deserve it. But when we're together, we sing psalms. And quite frankly, we're seated in the right fashion, where we can look at one another, or at least you can, and we can sing psalms to one another and watch people's expressions, their reactions. Now, turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, did I say the wrong passage? Colossians, did I say that? Okay, good. My wife caught me uh, one day saying the wrong passage. No one else said anything. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There it is again. But now notice, e even more pointedly, teaching and admonishing. 
So when we come together and we're this corporate group and we sing a psalm, we are each teaching each other and admonishing. And you, you realize that word admonishing is a word that, oh, well, sometimes it's translated instruct, sometimes it's translated warn. It is what J. Adams called, he, he called his counseling style, nuthetic counseling. That's the word, nuthetic, admonishing, warning. So you take somebody who's got a problem in their life and you bring them to scripture and you show them what scripture says and you say, okay, here's what you need to do. You are giving them counsel, nuthetic counseling. That's what the Psalms are. The Psalms have this counsel within them because the Psalms are not only just directed towards God, all of them are sung to God. Some of them are specifically, like we saw in Psalm 98, addressed to God. But some of them are the inner thinking of the psalmist as he's gone through trouble and he's looking for help. And he calls on the Lord to save him. And if Yahweh saves him, then he will use that occasion to, to, to teach others the same lessons he has learned. Hence, the psalms come into the songbook so that we can, as we sing together on Sunday morning or at other times as well, we, we are not only singing praise to God, but we are teaching and instructing one another. Our, our, our hymns are not so much like that. But the Psalms, from beginning to end, have all kinds of experiences of the psalmist, whereby he has something to say to the people. So. I just want to make the point loud and clear. The Psalter is the inspired book of Yahweh. When the 4,000 were selected out by David and by the commander of the armies to go up to the Lord's palace, for that's what it is, it's where the king's name dwelt. And they went up there to sing, and they were singing psalms. Psalms 1 through 150. Or some of them had not been collected into the Psalter yet, but you see, that's what they were singing. They were singing God's word. They were, they were not going up there to say, okay, can I write a new song for Yahweh? No, that's not wrong. I'm not trying to say that's wrong. I am trying to say that when it comes to hymnody, the Psalms are the only inspired hymn book. Well, when we come to worship God, and we come to worship God according to what he's laid forth, then we have to learn it. And of course, the Psalms are not easy, but things that are worthwhile often are not easy. Many of you uh, went through college classes to get where you were, and the class was not easy but you had to master it to proceed onward. So it is with the Psalms. And we noticed as we read that there were instructors and students. So there were those who were very skilled in the Psalms and in playing the Psalms who instructed the other people who were going to sing to bring them up to snuff in skill. So if we were to learn the Psalms, 
See, it's a command in the New Testament. If we were to learn the Psalms, not just to say them, because it says singing and psalming with your heart, not just to say them, but to sing them, because obviously singing is more glorious than speaking. And God needs, needs is not the right term, God deserves the more glorious. For us to learn them, we'd have to be people who were committed to saying, okay, you know, uh, we're going to, as a congregation, say once a month, get together one evening of the week, and we're going to learn two psalms and one hymn. Or, you know, I'm just throwing that out as, as something so that people uh, learn because they're not easy. As we've noticed, they're not easy. Well, having said that, then I want to say, uh, again, I, I want to I say, when we think about the tabernacle and what took place at the tabernacle, the scriptures record no singing. Now, I can't say there wasn't any, but it, there's none recorded. It's not that Israel never sang. Obviously, when they came across the Red Sea, they sang a joyful song because God had crushed their enemies. Then when you come to the temple, now this singing glorifies the temple. So over here you have a tabernacle, and you're looking at it from the outside. You're looking over the top of the white curtain that surrounds the courtyard, and when you see the tabernacle, what do you see? You see goat skin, goat's hair, covering this whole tabernacle. It's, it's, not, it's not extremely glorious looking. It's made to look more like Mount Sinai, where the cloud with darkness and gloom came down over Mount Sinai. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's built in such a fashion to make you realize that it, it, it's going up. You have the altar of burnt offering. Then above that, you can tell this by the metals, you would have the first room, the holy room. And then above that, getting towards the top of the mountain or up into heaven, you have the holiest of holies. But when you come over here to building this temple, which is so much bigger, and now it's going to be so much more glorious. It's going to have all kinds of gold lining the, the, the walls inside. It's just this huge structure with a lot more furniture. But now it has the same rooms, but it's not as much made to look like a mountain. It's true that it has those same characteristics where it speaks about the cosmology of God. That, that's true of it. But now when you come to this new thing, this is a permanent fixture. It's not to be ported around. It's something that's built solidly on the ground. And it is where God rests. And the king is going to come into his holy place. And this place is just glorious because the king is glorious and Beautiful. So over here, we don't have the song. But when we come over here to this new temple, which we will be looking at in, in some detail when we get into Second Chronicles, it's more glorious. So what David sets up to suit this temple of glory are these singers to sing. And this becomes Israel's songbook.
Now remember, we talked last week about the furniture in the tabernacle. I'm just going to use it. In, in the temple, sometimes there was more of the same furniture. So, But remember, we said you can't get into the first room. You can't see in there. All the stuff that's in there, none of the Israelites saw. And to go beyond that room into the Holy of Holies, none of the Israelites ever saw that. And so it's all hidden. And uh, these hidden things are furniture. And last week we talked about that furniture. Furniture. The, we had the table of showbread, the incense altar, and the candle stand. And inside we have the Ark of the Covenant with the, with the uh, Ten Commandments inside. And outside of the Ark of the Covenant we have the whole Torah, the scrolls written there. Inside that Holy of Holies we have the jar of manna. And we have Aaron's rod that budded, which was planted in the ground, and it grew blossoms, and it had almonds. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to say this quickly. These two rooms match up, and I told you last week that uh, the mysteries in there that Israel couldn't see was glory knowledge, and life. Anne's rod that budded with blossoms of white was glory. The candle stand with its lights on it is light, glory. The Ten Commandments were, are, are the word of God, and the altar of incense is right outside that, that holiest room and it's the prayers that go in, and so it's attached to the Word of God, which has to do with knowledge, knowing, knowing what God wants, knowing God's thoughts, knowing who He is. You get that out of the Word. And then on the table of showbread, you had the 12 loaves representing Israel, and you go inside the Holy of Holies, and you've got a jar of manna there, the, the food that God gave. It's life. These are the three things that we're made to have. This is the way Adam came in the garden. He was made as God's image bearer. And just as God had glory to rule the universe, he was giving to Adam and Eve the rule of the earth. He was to be glorified. He lost that glory when he ate from the tree that he was commanded not to eat from. And he was put in that garden and there was a tree of life there. And that tree of life he was allowed to eat from to get life. But he didn't eat from it. He ate from the wrong tree. And God's will was there. God's word was there. God spoke to him. God told him. These are the three things that everybody wants. You, you, want, you want to be somebody. Everybody wants to be somebody. Maybe, you know, your idea of somebody may be much more than my idea of somebody. Everybody wants to be in the know. They want the knowledge. And everybody wants life. Only you can't get in that room to get them. Along comes Jesus Christ. And Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in 
And so Jesus comes, and the whole thing is opened wide up. And so you and I, we have glory. It's the glory that Adam was supposed to have. We don't have it in its fullness yet. And you and I have life. We get to eat from the tree of life, which, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, to put it another way, it's the communion table. There's no magic there, but it's associated with life. And when it comes to God's will, God's knowledge, God's wisdom, it's been spread out for us in God's word. All of this is ours. And so every Sunday when we come worship, we walk through these steps. We walk through the step of uh, being made a true person again, a human once more. Because when we sin, we dehumanize what God made. And we come for God to forgive us. And God the Father is that person who makes us into new people every Lord's Day. And we come to hear God's word, whereby we know God's will and what he wants. And he uses that word to shape us into images of Christ. And we come to the table every Sunday, and we eat for life. I mentioned this in the Leviticus study. You know, everything we eat is dead. You don't eat live things. Everything you eat is dead. How do you get life out of dead stuff? Well, you can't. We eat dead stuff so that we realize it is the Holy Spirit who uses that stuff to give us life. If he weren't involved, we'd get nothing from it. So it is when we come to the table. I mean, sitting on the table is bread and wine, and, and they're, they're not literally the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But the Holy Spirit, when we eat them, communicates life to us, like eating from the tree of life. So every Sunday we come, we have all these treasures. How do the Psalms fit that? The Psalms are our inspired from God response to the gifts of God that he freely bestows upon us. So I changed the meeting just a little to show you how this can be done. Number one, we use Psalm 98 to be called to worship. Then we had a confession of sin and we sang Psalm 103, which is blessing God for taking away our sin. Now we're having God's word, and later on we'll have communion. And after we have communion, we're going to sing Psalm 47. All peoples, clap your hands. You see, it's, it's thanking God for what he's up to. That's what the Psalter is about. That's how it, how it fits in. Of course, it can fit in many other ways. Those, those are just simple ways to show us how it fits. Now, I am not suggesting that when we come together, we sing all psalms. I mean... That would be wonderful if we knew them all and could do well with them, but we're not that good at it. So we're going to sing hymns we know too, but the hymns must be judged by the psalms. The psalms measure the kinds of things God wants to hear. It is the inspired hymn book. We're not inspired today, but uh, I might, if I had the ability, write a hymn that by the judgment of the Psalms would be wonderful 
to sing in God's assembly. On the other hand, much of Christian hymnody is not made for singing when the church is gathered, not on the Lord's day. A lot of it is not made for that, but that's another topic. So I just want you to see, these, these men, these 4,000 men that are sent up to Jerusalem are ultimately at the temple. They're singing the Psalms. They're playing instruments on the Psalms. And, and, and at the same time, they're singing them. They're obeying what it says. So, uh, so Psalm, Psalm uh, 98 said, shout joyfully. Does that ever happen in church? If you sang it, would you say, raise your voice when, shout joyfully. Or Psalm 47 that we're going to sing after communion says, clap your hands. Do we obey it? No, we don't obey it. Psalm 95 says, kneel before the Lord your maker. This is, remember, the Psalms are for a community context. Do we kneel? No. So I ask you this. What do you suppose God thinks? Here's inspired words. And for some reason, we don't keep them. Well, the Psalms are beautiful. You know that. I know that. And we should learn them. You know that, and I know that. It's a difficult thing, and we will do it slowly. But mind you, the Psalms are the measure. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your gift to us of the Psalter. We thank you for the men who wrote the Psalms whom you inspired uh, from their experiences in life, from their interaction with you. All these things come from your good hand so that we know when we come to worship how to worship you. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives to us breath to speak the psalms out loud, and then breath to sing the psalms out loud. We thank you for that, Father. And we, we, uh, we pray that you would help us to come to learn these psalms over time so that, so that our children and our grandchildren will know them much better than we did. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.